Okay, welcome back to episode 19 of the Bible Connection podcast. So guys, this is a weekly podcast that follows our church's Bible reading plan that we might encourage you to just keep on reading your Bibles with us this year. So I'm your host, Josh Williams, and with me are two of my good friends, Brandon Stukesbury. Hey. John Steinke. Hey there. And usually we have Taylor with us, but he was he was kind of indisposed, so we're, we're going to miss him deeply on on this podcast yet again. But uh, let's 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 go ahead and get into it. This this week we are discussing uh, all of Second Chronicles. Uh, so the text of Second Chronicles begins in similar fashion to the beginning of First Kings. We see Solomon is highlighted alongside his construction and dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. So so what can we gain from this retelling of Solomon's life? And the temple's construction here in Chronicles. Remember, Chronicles is one text, and we emphasized last week that this text comes at the end of the Hebrew Bible. Um, even though in our Bibles we see Malachi at the end in Jesus' day, and when the Bible was compiled, this would have been the end of the text. And so because this is one text, you if you were, you know, just finishing up with first Chronicles, you would see one of the things that I emphasized last week was David, his sin when taking the census was to try to count what was supposed to be an innumerable promise, right? Your descendants will be as numerable as the stars. Well, here we see Solomon, who is picking up on this picture, this Davidic picture, the promise through David that the offspring would reign forever and ever, the throne forever and ever in the land. Solomon is picking up now for what right worship looks like in verse 9 of chapter 1, when he says, O Lord God, let your word to David, my father, now be fulfilled, for you have made me king over people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people. So Solomon here in these first few chapters is being depicted in a different light than kings because the authors are making different points. In kings, you're supposed to see the, the continual um, decline of of Israel, um, how they're going into exile because they're not doing right in the eyes of the Lord, but Chronicles is showing you what right worship looks like, and it's doing so by using this Davidic figure, and you're going to see what right worship looks like, and the further you get from David, the further away from right worship you're going to see. And so Solomon um, is the one that's responsible for the construction of the temple. Um, I know I geeked out in First Kings talking about you know, three spaces and garden imagery and cherubs and talked about how the temple is supposed to be a picture back to the garden. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to emphasize the same points here because I think the chronicler actually emphasizes some different things. One thing that he emphasizes is where the temple is built. In chapter 3, um, verse 1, Solomon began to build the temple of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So if you go back to 1 Chronicles, remember it's one text. David, at this site, after his sin, he made atonement with sacrifices for, for what he had done wrong, but he couldn't enter into the tabernacle. He was, because of the sword that could strike him down at the entrance, he couldn't enter the tabernacle. That should be reminiscent of the problem in Leviticus when at the end of Exodus, Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle. So David, as that Moses-like figure, he's unable to enter in because the same reason that Adam and Eve couldn't enter in. Because in their sin, they were forbidden from the life-giving presence of God, lest the flaming sword of the cherubim would strike them down. And so this location, Moriah, is linked um, 
to David and what he did with that sin. And there's another connection that Brandon wanted to emphasize. Yeah, you should, you should, this is a, this is a marker here that should remind us, Mariah should remind us of Abraham. Abraham taking his one and only son, right? The, the son of promise. Well, I mean, there, there was another son, but the, there's one son of promise up to sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Mm-hmm. Right? So we see that this is, this is the same place. And David is, is pictured kind of as another, as kind of another Abraham. God is God. God is is Yahweh is promising this this lineage with with Abraham. He's promising this lineage through the son of promise, right? But the Lord tells him to come up and, and sacrifice this son, when, and we and we know what happens from there. And then we we've learned in Kings and also in First Chronicles, David um, towards the end, David um, orders the census and to in order, and, and the Lord is 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 going to bring down judgment because of David's sin here. And David basically puts himself, um, he, he puts himself and his, in his household, right. To, to in, in front of, and basically in front of the knife saying, you know, let this curse come upon me and my family, even though, even though this promise is coming to me, right. This, this King that's going to come, I'm, I'm going to put myself here, to stop to stop this this judgment coming upon Israel. So we see the the imagery is 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 the same and what we see here is is the place it's the same place. So another emphasis of the temple that I want to emphasize here not what the temple looked like but what it looked like to worship there. And so the the people coming out of exile, they don't have fathers or grandfathers that remember the temple. It, it was at least a few generations removed from the actual living memory of how to offer these sacrifices. And what's more, when they get back to the land, there is no temple. So there isn't a way for them to immediately begin practicing and remembering how to do these things. And so when you look at the descriptions in First Kings, you see these garden images and the, the way that it's been carved into the walls and the cherubim, and you see the gold and the architecture. And some of that's present here. But what's more emphasized in chapter 4 is the furnishings of the temple. What's the altar like? What about the basins where you wash the lampstands and the tables and the pots and the shovels and the basins and the forks and the tongs and the snuffers and the, and you know, you can make a Dr. Seuss book about this, right? It, it's, it's describing the actual instruments that are used in the temple for worship with the Levites. And, and so I think that this is meant for the returning exiles um, to, to look at Know, what does right worship look like within the temple? And so they can think like when David was telling the generation that transitioned from the tabernacle to the temple, how do we change our method of worship? Let's look back at the tabernacle and think what you used to have as a requirement and now think forward to the temple and think what you should be doing. Now to these men without a temple, they're looking back on the actual practices of the temple so that they can think forward to how they're supposed to be doing right worship. And we see Solomon's emphasis on temple worship when he's offering up burnt offerings and he's offering sacrifices and all the festivals are being kept. One thing I do want to stop and say is that I I clearly, if you are listening to the podcast, believe that we have a lot to learn and we can personally, spiritually grow from these passages. I don't think that they're meant for other audiences, right? It's not like, oh, this was for the Jews and it's not for us. Clearly, I believe... That, that, that all of these passages we can grow from and we can 
we can learn from. But I want to warn you and be careful that not every promise that was made in in their day should be a one-for-one understanding of how it is in ours. So one verse that I've seen used often in chapter 7, verse 14, Solomon is praying at the dedication of the temple, and he says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And people go, oh, things are so horrible. I've been watching libs of TikTok and the whole world's you know, just going to burn. And so what we need to do is we need to get together as a church and humble ourselves and pray, and then God's going to make America great again. Oh, geez. I promise that wasn't – I wasn't trying to get political there, but like <laughs> it just happened. Um, <laughs> this is not a specific promise for America. This isn't a, a national promise that if we humble ourselves and pray as Christians that God's going to restore us as a Christian nation. Now, do I think that as Christians, the way that we behave is going to impact our communities and bring a common grace over the people around us? Absolutely. But I, I want to be careful that we don't claim this promise in that way. Just read the next verse. Now my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. What is this place? He's making this, you know, this promise about the temple. And so we really should not be looking at this as a promise that we can have national benefits if we if we follow these prescribed commandments, but more that we should see blessings in our church. We would see blessings in our in our communities that would overpour around us. It's it's I just want to be careful that we're not, you know, misappropriating promises of God. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would I would draw your your attention back to the beginning of of chapter seven, where it it, it, it says as, as as soon as Solomon Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw fire coming down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground, um, to the pavement, and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This this section right here is going is preparing us for the rest of the rest of the narrative here. And this 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 imagery of the Lord the Lord fire coming down, consuming. We've seen this you know, in, in, a, in a negative way. We've seen this with Nadab and Abihu. They offer strange fire or unauthorized fire, and, and, and literally they are the offering that's consumed, right, when you, when you um, do things like that. Um, but then in this, this, the, this is kind of the, 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 the chronology is kind of mixed up, but um, we, we see with Elijah, Elijah mocking the, the the prophets of Baal and the Lord affirming um, the priest, you know, the, the priesthood of Elijah, right, and 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 condemning the false priests. You know, he's the, the, this this is picturing God's affirmation and presence uh, on on right worship, and we see here that this language of the glory of the Lord filling the temple. This is this is language that we're going to see. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord uh, uh, high, high and lofty. And 
Isaiah says in our translations, it's in the train of his robe filling the temple. But in the Greek, in the Greek Septuagint, um, it's literally in his glory was filling the temple. And what's interesting in John chapter 12, John quotes the Greek variation of this and says, and, and he's, he's quoting Isaiah six here, but, but the, the glory of the Lord filling the temple, this is this, this imagery is massive for understanding this and, and, and flowing the Lord, the people seeing the glory of the Lord. The only response is, is, is praise for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And we're going to see this repeated. And we had talked in, in First Chronicles about how in, in the Chronicles as a narrative, you're, you're reading the, the chronology is kind of mixed up, and it's, it's you know you, you read genealogies, and then you've got this section of narrative, and then there's this section on how how worship is is to be rightly done and then there's it so it in in our minds it's written strange but to to the original recipients it was weaving together this this tapestry right so it wasn't just a book with filled with information this was a work of art right? the the whole narrative is is written in what's called a recursive manner right and it's and it's painting it's it's not just telling a story it's painting a picture Right. And this picture includes includes liturgical praising along with architectural, you know, you, it's putting you it's putting you into the the situation of 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 Israel at the time, right? And and you're 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 seeing the sights, you're smelling the smells, you're feeling, you know, that, that that's that's what the the author is is intentionally doing here. So, yeah, real quick on that. So those those are called theophanies, right? Like the visual, like um, what's the word? Manifestations, Manifestations of God's of, glory. Of God's glory. Like for instance, in in five, verse fourteen says, "For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God," right? And then right here in chapter seven, where you just talked about, uh, this is God manifest. What do you think? What do you th- what do you think is the importance of that? Is that like speaking to like the writer and how he? found that as something important to convey as opposed to like well in different sections it means different things right here specifically it is god's affirmation that this is the authorized this is the authorized um means of of biblical worship right in in other in other aspects it's it's the, like so for instance when they're in the wilderness during the day there was a pillar of smoke and during not at night there was a pillar of fire, right, 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 and that was that was that was symbolizing God's presence mm-hmm. among them, leading them. You will see um, in, in different aspects it means different different I guess, things. I guess the other part is like, why do you think he spends seventy seven verses on the dedication of the temple versus like like forty on like the construction or architecture? Well, I think that. One of the things that's important to emphasize is that he's he's trying to show what right worship looks like, and so you know he only needed a certain amount of space to describe um, the architecture here because you have First Kings as a reference, uh, right? Yeah. So they can always go back to Kings to see more detail. But he's trying to work out this picture for the people about what right worship looks like and the reaction they have to God's confirmation that this is. That this is right worship, so I need to stay close to the mic. And I can't remember where you said if if it was in the last podcast or if it was in this one, or if we've talked about it before. But these people ha- are have have come out of exile, right? The temple, um, they, they are unaware 
of of these things. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was and, last podcast. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right, rolling to the next one. So when 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 we last looked at the division of Israel in First Kings, most of most of the focus was on Jeroboam's evil and and the wickedness in the north that that led to Ahab. Here in Chronicles, the entire focus is instead on Judah. So w- what can we learn from the reigns of you know Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, and Jehoshaphat? Big picture. That the Davidic type figure is the one who will lead them into right worship. In a smaller view, like a more narrow focus, we could look at each king. So what did Rehoboam do to warrant him being called evil in the sight of the Lord in First Kings? Well, what he did was he abandoned faithful worship of God and instead pursued idolatry. These false places of worship, these false methods of worship. And instead of worshiping God, he went after these idols, which allowed a like a reversal of the Exodus, where the king of Egypt comes in and plunders Judah, rather than you know the Israelites plundering the Egyptians on their way out across the Red Sea. An, an Egyptian king comes in and plunders the temple of God, um, and this is because of their um, rejection of right worship. And so Rehoboam's son Abijah, who all we hear from in First Kings is that he was evil in the sight of the Lord we actually see him do something kind of great. Um, He stands up and says to the enemies of Judah, ought you to know that the Lord of Israel gave kingship over Israel to David and his sons by a covenant of salt in chapter 13, 5. And then he says in verse 8, and you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David because you have a great multitude? Have you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for your gods? Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord? the sons of Aaron, the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the people of other lands. And because of his faithfulness, because of his hearkening not to the size of his army, but instead to his faith in the Lord, he's given victory. So it's not a black and white, if, you know, somebody's did evil in the sight of the Lord, then they were always horrible and never did anything right for the Lord. Instead, that that description in Kings and in in Chronicles— it's talking about the overall intentions of the heart of these kings. It's not saying they were either a cartoon, you know, villain Hitler-like characters that only ever did absolutely evil things, or they were absolute Saint Mother Teresa's that only did, like, perfect things. They, they're flawed individuals, and the Chronicles is tracing them out one by one to show the further they got from David, the further they got from right worship. So after Abijah, you get Asa. Asa, known as a good king, but... Unlike his father, he was scared to go out and fight because of the size of his armies. He tried to bribe Syria, and so wrath came on the land. And then Jehoshaphat, in the days of Ahab, he starts making covenant and friendship with the most wicked king in north Israel, to where prophets are sent to him and said, Should you help the wicked king, chapter 19, and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Ashtaroth in the land. So the good that he sees is when he carves out idolatry, but the bad is when he fails to trust in the Lord. And so right worship is not just about where you're worshiping. It's also about what you're doing. And so that, those were the four kings that were mostly emphasized in the end of First Kings when um, you know they were kind of put in the back burner and the kings of Israel were kind of emphasized. And now we're getting a clearer picture of what they represent in Chronicles. Yeah, and to, and to and really to bring this to kind of step out of this context and and look at 
you know, a lot of times I know, I know myself, uh, I get in, you, you, you get in, if we're going to be real honest with ourselves, we think about people in our lives that are, you know, we know theologically that nobody is beyond God's saving grace. Sorry. Mm-hmm. God, God is sovereign, right? He, you know, he, 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 he can choose to redeem anyone he, he wants to, right? But, but sometimes in our, in my own unfaithfulness, there are people in my life right now that I would never say that, that they are beyond God's uh, saving grace, but I act as though they are, you know, um, and I think what Chronicles is 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 reminding us is even even when you have a Manasseh, like the the Lord can choose to redeem. I mean, and, and we're getting, getting that, that's coming later, right? But um, the 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 Lord can redeem whomever He wants, mm-hmm. right? He can turn He can turn Saul's into Paul's all day long mm-hmm. if He wants to, and we need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded for of sure, that. for sure. I roll into the next one. So chapters 21 through 25 include some of the most overlooked and forgotten kings in Judah. We got Jehoram, Ahaziah, uh, 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 well, whoa. Can you, can you say those Ahaziah? I mean, uh, I could be saying this completely wrong. Uh, in, in, in my best, You just say it with confidence yeah. and nobody will question uh, you. Jehoram, Ahaziah, Athaliah, Joash, and Amaziah. Okay. Yeah, okay. That's a lot better than mine. <laughs> What what is what is important about their role as kings in the history of Judah? Further decline from the right worship of of the, the figure of David. I mean, that's just the theme that as you move through Chronicles, what am I supposed to think about Jehoram? Well, his father let him marry into the line of Ahab. Remember Ahab, that really wicked king in North Israel. And what's the first thing that he does? He slaughters all of his brothers. Anybody else in the line that could have possibly remembered what right worship looked like from this line of David are now dead. And he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And then what happens to him? The Lord strikes him with an incurable bowel disease. And in two years he dies as his bowels are coming out of him in great agony. And so what replaces him, um, it keeps getting worse. Eventually you have like a mother who's murdering all of the sons of David. The whole line from Solomon is about to die out if not for the fact that Joash is rescued away by a priest and raised in secret so that he might be the true king in Israel. And I actually want to emphasize this priest, Jehoiada, if that's how you pronounce it, I have no clue, Jehoiada, the priest, because I think it's something you can learn from this section. Because as you remove yourself from right worship with God, it's going to reflect in the way that you behave. You can't expect yourself to be removing yourself from the way that God's commanded you to worship and expect that you're going to be doing the right things Facts. in your life. Facts. And so as long as Jehoiada is there to raise this young man, he does right in the eyes of the Lord. He brings right worship back in the land. But when he passes away, he allows himself to stop following after the sacrifices and the festivals of the temple, and he allows his friends to come in and tempt him away from these, these ways of worship in chapter 24. And he ends up becoming a wicked king. And so two things I want to emphasize. One, be a Jehoiada in somebody's life. If somebody's legacy has been um, ruined and crippled by sinful generations that have hated the Lord, be a father figure that steps in and shows them the right way to behave, shows them what it's like to love the Lord. But also don't forget and neglect right worship. 
make sure that you are going to church. Make sure you're following the word of the Lord. Make sure you're devoting yourself to, to loving and, and um, serving others because if you neglect those things, you're not going to find yourself 10, 15, 20 years from now um, still following in your faith. Uh, one thing that Brandon told me to mention before this um, episode started, don't just say right worship, right worship. What is right worship, right? Uh, one thing that would have been there for the audience would be there are, other, there are other texts that were written. So by the time Chronicles was written, they already had Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the Psalter. Worship doesn't just mean singing. Worship means devoting yourself and obeying the commandments of God. Worship means glorifying God with your, yes, singing, but also with your actions and, and with your lifestyle. And, and worship is anything and everything you do to ascribe worth to a holy God. All right, rolling into the next one. So in chapters 26 through 33, we see the final decline of Judah in the eyes of the Lord. So how, how did things get to this point where the kings are burning their children alive? and setting up idols inside the temple. Well, before it gets real bad, in 26, we've got Uzziah. And Uzziah is picked up in, if you, if you, you'll see a parallel here with um, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. This, uh, this the, you can kind of put your, put your Bible together in, chronologically in that um, Uzziah is reigning, like, so the, the time stamp in, in Isaiah six is in in the in uh, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right. So that, that that's that's putting that's putting Isaiah in this in this time spot, frame. yeah yeah. Okay. Um, but with with um, um, yeah. So well, another thing I want to point out really quickly in case you're getting confused. Uzziah is not in First Second Kings, so like, who's that guy? His, his name's also Azariah, just to make things a little bit more confusing for you. Um, but Uzziah, the decline begins because these people stop appreciating what right worship looks like. Uzziah prioritizes his own desire to be a priest over what God has described for how he wants his worship to be. So he walks right into the temple and gets angry while holding a censer of prayer right there in the holy place, and the Lord strikes him with leprosy. And so... You're going to see a continual trend of that through the next few generations. Um, Hezekiah, he's leading the people in tearing down idolatry and in right worship until he becomes proud. And he dies in his sickness, refusing to humble himself. Um, and that leads you down to, Brandon referenced him earlier, the likes of Manessa. Manessa was a horrible figure. If they were looking for a Davidic figure to lead them in right worship, he was the antithesis of what you would want. He was doing evil in the sight of the Lord, chapter 3, verse 2. He was building up the abominations in the high places. He was erecting altars to Baals and Ashtaroths. He built altars in the house of the Lord. He burned his own sons as an offering, and he also dealt with mediums and necromancers and did much evil in the sight of the Lord. You meant 33, verse 2, correct? What did I say? 3. It's okay. Oh, yeah, 33, yeah. verse 2. I was like, oh, no, I'm in the wrong spot. Yeah, so, so Manessa is doing... Um, just horrible, wicked things in the land. And yet his son after him was considered even worse because at least Manasseh humbled himself and turned from some of those things before he died, whereas Ammon never did. He was just incurring more and more guilt every day he lived. And so the Lord had decided, we already saw in Second Kings, that 
He sent his prophets. He warned them. Their time was up. Judah was going to go into exile. It was going to be destroyed. Um, and, and the people reading Chronicles know this. They are coming out of exile. They've already experienced that punishment. So what are they supposed to be learning from this? Well, they're, they're supposed to think about David. David, this Moses-like fixture, uh, figure. David, this Abrahamic-like figure. David, this person that gave instruction for right worship in the temple. And they're supposed to be anticipating the day that another better David will come and will actually faithfully be able to lead them in covenant worship. And they're supposed to be watching against the sins of the likes of Ammon and Manasseh and, and, and understanding that these are the things that the false king are going to be doing. And, and Josiah steps it up, and he's, he looks as though he's going to be this, this figure until he disobeys the Lord and goes off into battle. All right, in closing, we got chapters 34 through 36. Uh, they're, they are not only closing the chapters of Chronicles, uh, but they were once the closing chapters of the, the whole Old Testament. So what did these passages signify to the Jewish people as they waited on the Messiah to come? And, and what can we learn from them today? So there's something that we should see here in, in chapter 35 that's pretty shocking. Um, at, the, at, the, at the end here at, at the, of, of the, the narrative of um, Josiah, in chapter 35, verse 18, it's, men- it's mentioned in Kings as well, but it, it, it says here, No Passover locket had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as what was kept by um, Josiah. Now, we know that the, the Passover, and John actually clarified uh, for me earlier before this began, that there in chapter 30 you see here that Hezekiah um, celebrates the Passover. But with Josiah, some the, some of Josiah's reforms uh, are centered around in, in, 30, in 34, the book of the law being found. Right, and um, I would I would point point you back again if if you have access to um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, it is a children's book, um, but it has extremely heavy theological. It is out of the mouth of infants and babes. I've I've uh, established praise. Jesus said, you know, but sometimes the 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 greatest biblical theological truths are stuff that that are so. Um, um, easy to understand and and I feel like that 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 little children's book does a good job of 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 painting this picture but the as as the book of the law is is found and they are reforming um they are seeing um what maybe they were maybe we don't know exactly what the passover looked like in this time period what they were doing maybe it was in in decline we don't know exactly what it was like but they had the law um they had they had um the uh they had the scriptures to go back on and to reform their practices. Now we have the scriptures in front of us, right? But it's easy for us to, to in our glass house, start throwing rocks at these, at these Israelites for being so dumb, right? You know, and look back on this and, and feel, you know, like, Oh, well, how could, how could this, how could they do this? You know, this is terrible. This is the Passover. It's the center of their worship. But yet we need to step back and think about you know the, the the center of our worship. Why do we do things that we do? Why why in 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 the Lord's Supper, which is which is the New Covenant Passover, 
why do we why do we do it on the days that we do it? Why do we do it in the frequency that we do it? Why do we do it with leavened uh, leavened or unleavened bread? Why do we do it with grape juice or wine? Why do we do it? Um, um, there, uh, you know, um, multiple multiple things. You know, do we do what we do because that's the, the way we've always done, and we can't remember it being done another way, or do we constantly bring back our worship? And to do we look at the scriptures and and see, you know, why why is it that this element is in this in this way? Why is it that we do it this frequency? Why is it that we you know, are, are, are we bringing the scriptures to bear in what we do in our right worship? Um, and so that we, we don't become like, like Judah in decline. So, And I, I think that's an amazing like, correction that we need to hear because it's not that doing things like your fathers did them is inherently wrong. There, if you look at the kings of Judah, sometimes when they did like their fathers before them, that was a good thing. And then sometimes they did like their fathers before them, and that was a really bad thing. Yeah. And so our litmus test for right worship never needs to be, well, this is the way my father did it. This is the way we've done it here. It needs to be, let's go back to the scriptures. Let's find what we were commanded to do and always be bringing back to and calling back to what we were commanded in, in Christ Jesus. So ending, um, you know, we, you talked about how this used to be the ending of the, the last book of the Old Testament, not just the last chapter of Chronicles. When you look at the way the Old Testament used to end, just read the last verse of, of Chronicles. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all the people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And it stops. And there's this expectation, like, let him go up and do what? Let him go up and go where? Go up to Ju- We are already out of exile. We, we, this has already happened. We've already been sent back from Cyrus. And the anticipation of the text is meant to have you look forward to this fulfillment. What are they supposed to do? They've already heard from the prophets. They've, they've heard from Ezekiel that this new law is going to be written on their heart, that, that he's going to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. They've, they've seen from the Psalter that he's, the sun is going to dash the nations into pieces like a potter, potter's vessel. And you see in Isaiah 53 that this Obed, this servant figure, is supposed to be bearing their griefs and sorrows and being stricken and smitten by God. And he's going to be pierced for our transgressions. And there's this anticipation in the text of what is next. And, and something we emphasized when we were in First Chronicles episode of this podcast where do we pick up when we come into the New Testament? Matthew begins with the genealogies of Jesus Christ. There are only two texts in the, um, in, in the Old Testament that begin with this pattern of genealogies. But there are three texts in the Bible that do. And it picks up in the New Testament with Jesus being the fulfillment of all of these promises that they would have been hearing their entire life. And, and something, something else that I would... I, as as we end out chronicles, we we need to remember just as we began first chronicles that this was this was this was one text first mm-hmm. and second chronicles one text and it's important for seeing this 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 strange way of ending this this text is go up go up but it 
it should remind the original recipients of Genesis. Genesis began somewhat with Adam, right? Adam was created, right? It ends, the, the, the book of Genesis ends with the, death, with, with the death of Joseph. In Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up. Same exact phrase as Second Chronicles ends with. Uh, that, that he is going to bring you up out of the land to the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. So we should see the parallel of, of Genesis and Chronicles. Is they, they, are, they are absolutely paralleling one another. And remember, like John was saying, the people are already in the land. And, and if you read, one of the reasons that Chronicles is put right before Ezra is because Ezra is possibly the author of Chronicles, but it flows right into Chronicles. There's a, there's a, there's a pretty seamless transition. But the people are already in the land. You know, and there's, there's, there's things are to, that they are to do. They're already in the land, but the text is, is still telling them, go up, go up. Well, they need one to bring them up, right? And Jesus is the one who is going to bring them up, even though because we see that it's especially, especially they're gonna they're they're gonna come out of exile back into the land. But we already have we're gonna see this in Isaiah, but Isaiah is promising way more things than what they're getting mm-hmm. from come and 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 the 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 people, especially when we get in the, the next couple of books, they're they're realizing, wait a minute. Like, this is, Isaiah has promised a lot more. There's got to be more here. And that's just, this is what, and Josh, you brought this up before before the podcast began. This begins, this begins this, this eschatological fervor um, that we see as we open the New Testament. Where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? Where, what's happening? God is doing something. We're, we, there's been all of this time where we, we're not hearing from the Lord, but, but the way the Old Testament has ended no, there's we're, we're, we're to be looking for this deliverer, right? And Jesus steps in right, and, and is that deliverer. So. Well, I just want to say thank you guys for joining us um, each week. We are now on episode 19. One more will be in the two zeros, so that's super exciting. But um, one of the things we like to think about is how can we improve this podcast? And the best thing we can come up with is, you know, questions from the audience. So... If, if you have any questions, you can you can email us. It's uh, thebibleconnectionbdbc at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment on the YouTube video. That's really super easy. And then the other thing, like, just come up, come up to us. Give us, like, you know, like a Spock hand signal or something. And just be like, hey, I got a question for you. Can we talk about this on the podcast? And, 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 or just know. give us a random Spock symbol so know somebody's listening to the podcast. Oh, there you go. <laughs> But anyways, that's it for the episode, and and, and we'll see you on episode 20.